Yeah. Just let me know when you're going to do that. I got a girl named Daisy just about drives me crazy. I'll bring my lab in. We'll have a little time. That's great, guys. I tell you. Man. I'm impressed. We've got more. I know. I tell you. I get it. I'm with you, buddy. Now, last week, we uh, finished out chapter 29 of Proverbs, and we talked uh, about uh, our roots of Christianity in America. You know, and without a doubt, Christianity, as is our country, you know, I, I guess the greatest explanation of it all would be it's an insane asylum run by the inmates. Uh, it's just a disaster in every aspect. And, you know, and we talked about how that we uh, got a good look based on verse 25, how that the system and how the system works. You know, both in the world and unfortunately also in New Testament Christianity. And fundamentally, we knew the world would do it, but Christianity seeking, forsaking the favor of God and going after the favor of man. You know, and uh, in establishing a non-biblical system that will fundamentally circumvent the local church, and it, which is God's structure, you know, and really has put an end to uh, any meaningful work of God on a national level today. There hasn't been a revival in America for almost 50, 60 years. And uh, there's a lot of things that people call revival. You know, in the old days, you know, you go by churches today, out on their marquees, they'll say, you know, come March 1st through March 20th, revival in our church. You know, that's, that's a clear thing you want to stay away from a church like that. A church that thinks that you can schedule God on his calendar for a revival. The truth of the matter is, we don't have revival services here. Probably never will. I mean, if I had a guy come through who was a really good preacher, I'd have him preach for you just so he'd carry up a little bit, but I wouldn't call it a revival. You know why? Because God's people need to live in a revival every day of their lives. You're, you ought to be in a state of revival today because of what God's doing in your life. And, uh, you know, and we, we saw it. You know, Proverbs 19.21 says, There's many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. And uh, nowhere is that more prevalent than in New Testament Christianity today. You know, and I showed you based on the verse and the concept last week how that... Uh, you know, all the favor of man that the world tries to get and Christianity gets. God talked about the two judgments that are coming. And for an unsaved man, a lost man, it will be the great white throne judgment. And obviously for you and for me as a saved man, it will be the judgment seat of Christ. And in that day, you know, nothing, nothing that you've worked out and made a deal with anybody here is going to cut it in that day. You know, we get the idea that the great white throne judgment, which is the last judgment in the Bible, and, you know, everybody believes in some form or another that there's, there's one last judgment. I, I, it's hard to find somebody today that doesn't believe that someday, maybe nothing to do with the Bible, but we're going to have to give an account to something or somebody for what we did. And, uh, you know, I mean, the guys who don't believe in God or heaven at all, they believe that if you live a good life and you're reincarnated, you come back as an eagle. If you're not a good life, you come back as a pigeon or a duck. See, that's judgment to them. But we know that we know that for a lost man, uh, the great white throne judgment is going to be, it isn't going to be you get up there and there's a big set of scales and God puts all your good works on this side and all your bad works on this side. 
And if your bad works outweigh your good, you go to hell or wherever. And if your good works outweigh your bad, then you go to heaven. That ain't going to be it. He's going to put you in this hand and Jesus Christ in this hand, and he's going to read your meter. And it's a thing where, you know, that judgment is so clear for an unsaved man. And for a saved man, the judgment seat of Christ. What have we done with Christ once we have taken him as our own personal Savior? Now, in life, a lost man uh, and a saved man will both have to deal with their, their old sin nature. In the Bible, this is called the flesh, you know, the old man, and, and Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7. And, you know, uh, for an unsaved man, uh, there's nothing he can do about it. His, in his spiritual condition, his eternal soul is stuck to his sinful flesh. And you find that in the Old Testament, this is why you find the word soul and body used interchangeably, because in the Old Testament, the, the body, the flesh, is stuck to the soul. So the word is used interchangeably. It's not that way once you get saved in the New Testament. Now the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, the operation of God made without hands takes place and separates you from your flesh. And now the Bible says that you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. But in both cases, an unsaved man will have his sinful nature all of his life. A saved man, once he gets saved, he now has the ability to change everything about him. Praise the Lord. He now has the ability to be a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. All things become new. But he still has to contend with that old nature. And this is Romans chapter 7. Uh, you know, 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says that on a daily basis with the promises of God, we're to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And that's a daily thing that we stay in the Word of God and we control the old flesh where a, a, an unsaved man, he has no control over anything. He is a victim of himself. And the devil, the world, the flesh will do with him whatever they choose to do. He can stop it if he wanted to. I mean, I've seen guys that were rank alcoholics that were unsaved. And, you know, they go to AA or go to some therapy training and they get a pastor alcohol and they got a great victory in life and they're happy about it because they once were an alcoholic and now they're not. By the end of the day, you wind up going to hell anyhow. What's your point? There has to be something that changes you that you have nothing to do with. And you cannot change yourself. I cannot change myself. I can't change you. I tell people all the time that come in, they've got issues they want to work through and they want to change some things in their life. I tell them, I say, you know what? I can put 10,000 people around you, but nothing will change until you decide you're going to change. And, uh, you know, in many cases, most cases, uh, God's people simply chose, choose not to do that. They don't want to change. And Christianity today uh, has, as we said last week, has, has married itself to the world, unfortunately. You know, and also I, I tried to show you last week the mess that we are in out of chapter 29, verse 25, uh, and, and that maybe uh, you could see, you know, how we got here. I think it's always, I, I, you know, I know everybody gets themselves into a jam, and we all want to get out of the jam, and I want to help you get out of the jam, but you know what? You'll never completely get out of the jam till you understand what got you in the jam in the first place. You know, you cannot solve problems with the same stupid thinking that got you into the problem. Things have to change. You know, uh, in, a, in, in, in a man-made system like we have, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's a political system, both worldly and in a Christian, as I showed you last week. And I, I tried to give you an understandable history of Christianity in America 
and really the death of Bible preaching and the Bible doctrine and why we are in the situation that we're in today. You know, I told you last week that I, I felt like I didn't do it very good justice trying to put all that material into a short time and how in time I'd like to, you know, put that into a, a, a series of lessons or at least a book form that would be out there where people could get it. John Busquette came up to me afterwards and he says, well, you know what, you're almost through with Proverbs. Once you do Proverbs 30, why don't you just take three or four months to take a break before the next one and lay all that out? And so that, that's what I'm going to do. And then we'll have a manuscript that will be on the tape, and then we'll be able to take it from there and, and put it into a, a format. So, you know, I, it's a thing where we as a church, uh, we need to be informed. I want you informed. I want you not only informed, I want you equipped. You people do a tremendous job with other people. I mean, this church is filled with people that somebody else brought because you cared enough for them and God put them in your world, and it's an ongoing basis. And you need to be equipped to deal with things in the world that we're in and give intelligent answers to the situations that we face today. I'll tell you something else. Our children need to grow up with an understanding of it, of who we are and why we are who we are and why we believe what we believe. Well-equipped. You know, I, I don't, most of you probably don't do this, but on Thursday night Bible study, I don't know why I'm thinking of it Thursday night, uh, Gary told me that we're completely out of hot dogs, so we need, this has nothing to do with the message. We'll, we're not going to take an offering up for hot dogs here in a minute, but it's a good idea. Don't but next Sunday we're completely out, so bring them in. I'm telling you right now because I will forget, and then I'll kick myself this afternoon about not telling you. So bring hot dogs either Thursday night or next Sunday. Um, and they're, they're, uh, make sure that they're, they're Jewish, okay? The kosher ones, we are. You know, on Thursday night, uh, all the people on the, on the Internet uh, come in on the, in the YouTube deal, and there's a really a little Bible study that goes on. You know, I always go home and read the comments and the questions that people ask, and there's really another little Bible study. They all can't get their questions in, so it's really good. I mean, you've got some really goofy people out there. Not too many, a couple. But the majority of them are really solid guys who have a handle on the Bible. But what impresses me is the fact that the guys working the table back there, they will field and answer a lot of the questions that aren't going to get up there. I know Aaron does it. I'm sure Woody does it. Uh, and it's a thing where I'm, I'm just impressed out of my mind. In fact... One guy last week asked a question. Aaron answered, I think it was Aaron answered him the question, and then it somehow it got up to me on the forum, and I answered it, and the guy said, You guys answered it word for word. I mean, he was right down the line with everything that I said. And to me, it shows me that it's working here. There's men and women who really care about the Bible, who want to learn the Bible, and boy, it really pays off. And I know I could, I, I could put a hundred of you in that scenario, and you do uh, with the Bible what needs to be done. But I'm just telling you, that comes from being well-equipped. That comes from somebody spending the time to give you everything that you need, so we cross all our T's and dot our I want you to know what's going on in the world. I don't want you to be just a kind of Christian who walks around praising Jesus all the time. And, and uh, you know, and I want you to be informed that you can take what you know and put it into a workable format and deal with people. Now, today, we're going to enter into chapter 30. And we've now come up to uh, the last two chapters uh, in the book of Proverbs. 
And in these, um, we're going to get into some incredibly deep material here. Uh, in, in, when Solomon writes, or in the Proverbs anyhow, as you get closer to the end of his books, it really begins to pull a lot of things together. And yet, if you would read uh, any commentary on Proverbs, and there's hundreds of them out there, uh, you'll find that when you get to all the Proverbs, really, but certainly the last two chapters, they haven't got a clue what's going on. And that is so sad, but it is so true. But, you know, for us, as always, we'll just stay with the God-honored text in the English that God gave us in the Bible, you know, and we'll allow God to compare Scripture with Scripture to give us everything that, that, that we need. John chapter 5, verse 39 tells us to search the Scriptures, and that's what we do here. I'm not interested in my opinion, your opinion. I'm interested in searching the Scriptures and seeing what the Bible says. And, uh, you know, scholarship when it hits places like we're going to look at today and, you know, in weeks to come, uh, they, they run to their Hebrew lexicons, you know, or they, they run to their, uh, you know, look at the passage and say, well, it's an unfortunate rendering or a bad translation, or in many cases they don't want to do it. They just take it out completely because they don't want to deal with it. Well, we, on the other hand, uh, know that if we can't get it, it's our issue, not God's. Thursday night, again, was another great example. Somebody asked a question out of 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 19, and compared it with Chronicles, where you have a guy by the name of Ahaziah, who one place says he's 22 year old, old when he began to reign, another place says he's 42. And it seems like it's a discrepancy. And I walked you through things like that. You know, it's, uh, God's Word is absolute. There's no mistakes in it, there's no mistranslations in it. There's just a lot of people who want to overthrow God and try to, uh, you know, be smarter than Him. So, you know, uh, I want to start today, because we're going to get into this stuff. I, I've been, been waiting to do this. And, uh, I, I, you know, I think where we're at right now, it'll put a lot of things into perspective for you. Uh, but before we get into the last two chapters, I want to take just a few minutes. It's not the, not the message, but this is an add-on. This is a freebie. This is like getting a cupcake and you got sprinkles on it. You didn't pay for the sprinkles, you just paid for the cupcake. I want to talk to you a few minutes about Solomon himself. Solomon, without a doubt, will be the, in my mind anyhow, the greatest study uh, in the Bible outside the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he is one of the most complex studies that you'll ever take. And the reason for that is that there's so many angles to his life. And without a doubt, God used him <coughs> his life in so many different ways to show us so many different things. And give me a few minutes just to show you just a few of them, what I'm talking about. First of all, number one, you want to go back and sometimes start at the beginning of his reign when he becomes king. It's one of the most amazing, one of the most amazing things you'll find in 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, verses uh, down through that chapter. I always looked at <clears throat> what he asked for. Now, here's a guy who was a king, much like putting himself of a president of the United States or the Queen of England or whatever. And yet he's, <clears throat> he's got total sovereignty and total reign over everything. And when he comes to God, it shows his attitude toward the people of God. Uh, he knows who he really is. He doesn't come up and... and tweet all over the place. I don't know, they didn't tweet back then, but he did all the things about how great he was and what he knows. He simply went before God and said, these are your people, but I'm a child. 
and I, I, I don't feel like I'm qualified, and I'm going to need everything from you. He understood he had no ability on his own. He, wow, is this rare for a president or a king? He sees himself as a servant more than a king. Incredible stuff. I think when you, and I think it's in 1 Kings, you know, uh, chapter 8, where he dedicates the temple. It's one of the most amazing things that you'll ever study. His prayer is one of the most incredible prayers. And I, I look at that, and I see within that prayer, and I don't have time to go through it this morning, but in that prayer, I see him laying everything out, understanding the temple of God, what it means, how important it is to God, and then the dedication of everything that he did. And I'll be honest with you, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, you have of God, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. I see the parallels very clearly. Have we dedicated our temple like Solomon did? It's incredible stuff, man. I mean, it's incredible stuff. Second thing, God gives him his wisdom and he becomes the wisest man that ever lived. He reigns around 1000 B.C. and his reign lasts 40 years. And during that time, you know, there's no wars. Uh, The land is at peace. And uh, throughout the world, God establishes him uh, as the wisest man in First Kings chapter four, uh, the Queen of Sheba comes all the way up from Africa, and she sees his kingdom. You had to read her account. She's overwhelmed. She's she has no breath left in her. She sees the magnitude of the glory of God. It in, here it comes. It impressed her so greatly that a thousand years later, in Acts chapter eight, an Ethiopian eunuch coming up from Africa was still believing down there how great Jerusalem was and was coming to Jerusalem to find God like she did. Even had no idea that it was all gone now. No clue. Incredible stuff. When you go over to 1 Kings chapter 3, you see a little picture of his wisdom. You got the two harlots come in and they all both had a baby. And, uh, uh, and the one rolled over and killed one baby and then took the other baby. And so they come in there. Uh, the real mother says, it's my baby. The mother who isn't the real mother says, no, it's my baby. Solomon, and this is a great picture of his wisdom. We use this in our, in our people ministry all the time. Solomon didn't know who was telling the truth. They're both harlots. That means they've got suspect character. Uh, He didn't know who was real, who was right, who was telling the truth. So you know what he does? He calls for a sword, and in his his immaculate wisdom, he's going to cut the baby in half and give half to one and half to the other. Now, I know, that sounds really stupid, doesn't it? What good is a half of a dead baby? You're missing the point. The point is, when he threatened to kill the baby, it brought the light who the real mother was. Because the real mother was rather give the baby to the mother it wasn't than to have the baby killed where the woman who was not the mother of the baby said, kill it, I don't care. Now, here's the point. We use this all the time. Solomon used a sword. And in Hebrews chapter 4, the sword's a type of the Word of God. When you want to find out where the truth is and who's doing what's right and who isn't, you really want to know what the bottom line is, just put them under a sword. If somebody says, I want to do right and I want to change my life, 
You want to find out if they're real or not? Put them under the sword. See if they're here on Thursday night. See if they're in a prayer group. See if they're studying their Bible. See if they're getting in it. Or they're just putting that line out because of the fact that uh, that's what they think everybody wants to hear. It's incredible stuff. Chapter 4, verse 29 says, and 30 says that his wisdom excelled all of the countries in the East. It's always been amazing to me. We look at the Middle East, uh, the Eastern religions like Buddhism and Shintoism and Confucianism and, and even you know, all of those, or Mohammedism too. All of those come into play after Solomon's reign. One of, one of them during his time. You know why? Because he was the man who hauled the mail and everybody copied off of him. It's incredible. Third thing, he writes three of the five wisdom books. He writes Proverbs, he writes Ecclesiastes, and he writes the Song of Solomon. The other two wisdom books, of course, you're well aware of is Job and Psalm. Somebody said one time that Job deals with the suffering of Christ and shows you Christ in his suffering, which it does. Somebody said one time that Psalms represents the heart of God, especially Psalm 119, and it does. And then somebody said, you know what? You have the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the three left books that Solomon writes represents the mindset of those three. And Proverbs represents for us, we've talked about it many times, the mind of God. Ecclesiastes represents for us the mind of the Spirit. And Song of Solomon represents for us the mind of Christ. Incredible stuff. <laughs> Spend the rest of your life just on that one. Now the fourth thing. Now here's where it gets interesting. <laughs> I love this. <clears throat> Solomon is the only man in the Bible. You know, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you have 21 types of men who foreshadow the Lord Jesus Christ. We call them types of Christ. And along with that, there's 18 men in the Old Testament that foreshadow the Antichrist. We call them types of the Antichrist. 21 for Christ, 3 times 7, that's his number, perfect. 7, 3, because the Holy Trinity, you know, that thing. And then you have 18 for the Antichrist because that's 666. So it all kind of works together there. But Solomon is the only man in the Bible who not only is a type of Christ, but he's also a type of the Antichrist. I mean, when you go back to 1 Kings chapter 10, <clears throat> you'll find there where <clears throat> it talks about in the first 12 verses it talks about Solomon, and he's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then it gets to verse 13 on, and it says that the weight of the gold that came to Solomon was 666 talents. And from that point on, he's a type of the Antichrist. Incredible stuff. Somebody said, why is that? Why would God do that? Because in a basic form, he wants to show you I mean, there's something that God wants us to see in all of this. He's the, this is the only man God could have picked. And he took this guy and he, he gave him his wisdom. Then he allowed him to experience everything in life. And then this guy wrote about it and it's for us. So when you see him as a type of Christ and a type of antichrist, you're going to find out that it's showing you and me how close the antichrist is going to be to the real thing. That he's a perfect, almost perfect imitation. 
You find 666 three times in the Old Testament. You find it in here in 1 Kings 10. You find it in 2 Chronicles 9, uh, verse 10. And then, whoa, you found it in Ezra chapter 2, verse 13. There's a reason for that. Most of God's people, they have no clue. They have no clue. So everything about him. Now, the fifth thing, and this is where it kind of gets confusing. Solomon is allowed by God to experience everything in life, the good, the bad, and certainly the ugly. And it leads him away from God into a pagan lifestyle. I mean, when you go back to 1 Kings chapter 11, it says, you know, that uh, Solomon loved many strange women. He had a thousand wives and from all the different nations, which he was told from God not to do. And the Bible says that they turned his heart from God and he winds up in paganism. He winds up following the false gods and burning incense and the fire of Moloch he allows to be in. It's incredible. And people look at that and say, well, how can that be? Why is that? Well, God deals with him in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 9 through 13 on the sin that he's in, got into. And at some point, at some point, during the time that he's out, way out in left field, he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. Because in that book is the only book in the Bible where you find the word understanding is not found. Because it's, it represents the world, and he goes through in that book, what, 33, 34 different psychologies of man or theologies of man, the forms of government, the devices that we've talked about. He talks about capitalism. He talks about Bernie Sanders and socialism. He talks about Nikita Khrushchev and communism. Uh, he talks about Bill Clinton and liberalism. He, he, I mean, their names are in there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> of course, you do know that Barack Obama, that was the name of Muhammad's horse that went up to heaven in the translation. <laughs> just stay with the old man. I'll get you through. I promise I will. And it's a thing where, you know, it's, 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 it's confusing. But at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, now, I'm going to tell you something. I've looked for this all my life. I've never found anybody who ever could put his three wisdom books in an order that they were written. I mean, they all have their ideas. I've never bought any of it. And I don't even know that my idea is right. But mine fits more into the Bible. I think personally that when he was early in life, he wrote the book of Proverbs, and maybe uh, before that, he wrote the book of Proverbs. When he got away from God and got into all the things that he did, God allowed him to do that. That's when I think he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, because he's into the world. The book of Ecclesiastes is about everything that's under the sun. There's no mention of God in it. There's no mention of God doing anything in it. It's a purely a book that shows you the world system that he's in. But at the end, in chapter 12, he says this. He says, let us hear the whole conclusion of the matter. He's went through all of these things. He's lived his lifestyle, evidently. And now he says, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And he comes back at some point. And that's when I think he wrote the book of Song of Solomon. <clears throat> 
Now, I may be clear off on that, but at least that fits in the scheme of his life as I come down through here. And it's a thing where, you know, it's incredible. Now, the sixth thing. Now, out of all of these things, God will use his life and his departure from the truth to show us, here it comes, if you want to know why God allowed him to do that, I mean, God had a picture for us in everything else that he did. His beginning, his attitude of heart toward God's people, the dedication of the temple, I mean, everything. Why would he not have something here? And of course he does. And you know what the picture is? We all have the truth. We all have the wisdom that Solomon had. You got it in a book. Many of you have it in your heart. Many of you are, would give Solomon a run for his money on the wisdom that you've got because of the time you spent in the Word of God. But just like Solomon, if you don't guard it, if you don't keep it close to you, if you don't make it the most precious thing, the world will come in and snatch it from you just like it took it from him. There's some great lessons here. You know, I, uh, I don't know, several, several years ago as I looked at this, I, I was looking for a common denominator. I'm a guy who likes to get in and look at something, lay it up, and then cut it up and split it up and look for something, a thread that pulls it all together. And one night, I must have been literally in the morning, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Oh, it couldn't have been that late. I'm in bed by then. It was at some point late at night. I looked at this thing with Solomon and, and all that he had did. And you don't want to miss this. I looked at Solomon departing from God and getting into trouble that we have a tough time understanding how the wisest man in the world could do that. Hey, the wisest man in the world can also be the stupidest man in the world at some time in his life. Don't take that as a, as a blasé statement that people who have wisdom don't make dumb mistakes. We all do. But it came to me. There's three things that Solomon did that led him away from God and into the life that he had. And you know what? I'm telling you, it's the same three things that in every one of our lives will lead us away to. There's the picture. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, you know what he did? He made an affinity with the king of Egypt. Egypt, the type of the world in the Bible. And the first thing he did as the wise man and the king of Israel was break the law and got backed with the world and friends with the world. And that's exactly the first step for every child of God in the church age. When you're going to go out of fellowship with God, that's where it will start. You make it in a league with the world. You're not willing to step out of it completely. Keep one foot in church, one foot in, in, in the world. That's where it started with him, and that's where it'll start with you. Then I'll show you the second thing that happened. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38. 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 1. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38, it talks about him building the temple. And it says, Solomon was seven years building God's temple. Praise the Lord. Then it tells you in the next chapter, 7, 1, but he spent 13 years building his own house. There's a second thing that will get you in trouble. Building the things in your life more than the building the things of God in your life. That's the second thing that got him, and that's the second thing every child of God who ever got out of fellowship started by me not breaking with the world and then spending more time on the things that he likes to do or she likes to do 
than the things that God likes to do. And I'm not taking away any way, shape, or form that you do things that you don't you, you, you like. There's anything wrong with that. There isn't. I like to do things that I like. Everybody does. Show me you have hobbies. Show me you like to fish. Show me you like to hunt. Show me you like to... Well, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. And show me you like, uh, you know, you buy a house or you buy this. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's the balance of proportion. It's the thing that you realize that we all need things to get our head straight and out of the mess of things that we have to deal with. But at the end of the day, if you spend more time building your house the things that you have, then you do the temple of your body that God, you're going to wind up in the world just like Solomon. You know the third thing he did? I saw this, man. I thought, well, there's the answer right there. That thing's incredible. That's a, God let him do that, allowed him to do that because he gave, only man in the Bible, because he had the wisdom of God, he needed him to do that to get the understanding to me and to show me that, you know what? Solomon getting out of fellowship with God, just like me getting out of fellowship with God. It started with not breaking with the world. It started to spend time, more time with my world, my stuff, than God's stuff. And then 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1 says, she loved very many, many strange women. Now, it just isn't about women here. There's a bigger picture here. The first thing was, didn't break with the world. Second thing was, more time doing his own thing than God's thing. And the third thing was, the association that he hung out with, the people in his world, the people that he became intimate with, the people that he allowed to influence him because the Bible tells you that they turned his heart from God. Same three things that will mess everybody in this room up this morning. Now, this has led to many Bible teachers questioning the fact that Solomon went to heaven or went to hell when he died because it looks like, you know, he, 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 and of course, that's clearly a problem of somebody not being able to read. I mean, in Psalms chapter 89, verse 26 through 29, you have what the Bible calls the sure mercies of David, meaning that David should have been killed for the sins that he did, but God gave him his sure mercies and didn't kill him. And God tells him that that sure mercies is going to pass to his seed. So Solomon got in under that. I mean, it's incredible stuff. Now, along with that, I mean, it's crazy. Solomon is an incredible picture as a type of Christ what our relationship should be uh, with Christ in the book of Song of Solomon. Solomon had a thousand wives. But when he gets, this is why I say, in my mind, I think he wrote the Song of Solomon when he came back because he realized that in those thousand women were no virtue. And he found one woman that was everything she should be and had the virtue that he was looking for that he never found in the others. And he writes a love book story to her called the Song of Solomon in which he starts out in chapter 1 talking about how he God saved us. And then it goes from chapter back to chapter, how God looks at me. And then gives me a chapter how God, how I should look at him. Oh, man. And yet the Bible says in 1 Kings, you know, the, uh, uh, 13, 3, that uh, he only found one with virtue. And here it comes. Oh, this is good. Jesse Jackson will love this. 
she's a black woman. And God coined the phrase, once you go black, you never go back. In a Bible sense. See? The world wants to use it in another sense, but God coined the phrase. Now, along with that, okay, it's all right to have a little chuckle on those things. It's okay. I was chuckling myself when I saw that just a second ago. I have to chuckle on the inside. But sometimes I crack myself up so much I just lay on the floor laughing. <laughs> that's why. That's why. In Acts chapter 8, the first man saved in the Bible, just like you and I are saved, is an Ethiopian eunuch. He's a black man. He's a servant of servants. That's why when Jesus Christ went to the cross, it was Simon the Cyrenian, a black man, Cyrenians in North Africa, who helped him carry the cross. Picture you and me. You know, I asked a jeweler one time, uh, because in Matthew chapter 12, or 13, I think it is, uh, the church, you and me, is likened to a pearl, a pearl of great price. So that'd make this a black pearl. And I asked a guy one time, I said, I, you've got beautiful pearls here. He saw, I said, why are, why are black pearls are more, more desirable, or at least more expensive than the common dirt pearls? And he says, yeah, that's true. He says, they're, they're very rare. And I said, um, I don't, I'm just, you know, I said, how rare? And he, you know what he said without heading? Oh, about one in a thousand. You know, you know what that tells me? This black pearl, this black woman who represents what you and I should be, a servant of servants with no rights and simply a bond slave to Christ, who we saw a couple of weeks ago that he takes in to be our son, remember? You look across Christianity, you know what you got? Probably one of the thousands ever going to cut it. I mean, I wonder, and I don't mean this in a bad way because you know I love you, and honestly, I have my share of, of uh, we're disproportionate here, we have a lot of people who I would fit in that number one category. I'm just telling you. But I wonder how many people, Christians in this city, would take the time to lay out Song of Solomon to really see and understand how God sees them and loves them and then take the time to find out back how they should love him instead of just using the word love so flippantly like we do. This is why... Method to my madness, this is why a number of years ago on a New Year's Eve, I took the whole night and laid out the book of Song of Solomon. It's in a book back there for you that you can go through and lay it out yourself anytime you wanted to. See? Equip you. Give you what you need. Uh, it's incredible stuff. And then, once he finds her, he not only writes a love letter to her, Song of Solomon, called the Song of Psalms, uh, so, uh, Song of uh, Solomon, uh, but then he writes about her in the last chapter of the book of Proverbs under the heading of the virtuous woman. Boy, will we have fun with that when we get there. So, you know, we see how his life is an amazing study on so many different levels. And without a doubt, he is one of the greatest character studies uh, in all of the Bible. And so with that, I, I want now to uh, uh, open up the chapter, the last two chapters here of this great book. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where we're going to look at uh, the book of Proverbs, which is uh, the mind of God. You know, it's taken us <clears throat> quite a while. I really don't, a, a long time to get through Proverbs. We're not done yet. Every time I go to study on Monday morning to lay out my deal, I 
I have to laugh at myself. I think about several years ago, four, five, six years ago, we had several couples that, you know, were disgruntled in the church and were always talking about didn't like this, didn't like that. And, you know, when people leave a church, they never, what, what they tell you they leave for is not what they never leave for. And one of the things that, uh, that the one girl said is the fact that, well, we've just been too long in the book of Proverbs. We've probably been in Proverbs three or four years. We were just too long in the book of Proverbs. Which to my answer was, Proverbs is the mind of God. It would be somebody like you that would want to hurry through God's mind. Not me. I'm going to end here, probably spend six years doing it. I feel like I've cheated God. That thing could go on. I could go back and teach it again and probably f and, and find a million things I didn't see the first time. That's God's mind we're playing with here. You want to hurry through it? What do you want to hurry to? I mean, Enoch got into that mind and he walked with him for 300 years. How'd you like if I preached on it for 300 years? People are nuts. Let's read it. Proverbs chapter 30. Hey, we're going to get through six verses today. I know. Jesus may come. The words of Agur, the son of J.K., even the prophecy, the man spake unto Ithael, even unto Ithael and Eucal. Surely I am more brutish than any man, and have not understanding of a man. I neither learn wisdom, nor have the knowledge of the holy. <coughs> Who hath ascended up into the heaven, or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fist? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? Ah, what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. Every word of God is pure, is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. J. Frank Norris, would you stand up and... You're always going to be J. Frank Norris to me. I don't care what your name is. <laughs> Go ahead. <coughs> Thank you, buddy. Now, in this first six verses, and this is why I took all six, there's two great things I want to see here. And the first thing is we're going to look at God and his work and his son's work and the world not getting it. Then the second aspect is will be an incredible study on the word of God that God has given to us. Let's look at verse 1 first, and it says, uh, The words of Agur, the son of J.K., even the prophecy that the man spake unto Ithael, even unto Ithael and Eucal. Now, the great question today among Bible scholars, and you, you might have already guessed this, is they want to, uh, suddenly everybody's concerned about who this uh, Agur is and uh, showing up here. And, uh, you know, uh, suddenly uh, it all, uh, they all go to pieces on it. And all, you know, all the worthless writings and reams of material uh, just completely uh, mean nothing. Uh, now, in all truth today, the, the man is not identified in the scriptures, just so you know. Uh, the Jewish rabbis 
will tell you that it's another name for Solomon. And that's probably as good a guess as you could get. I'd buy that before I'd buy anything else, just based on the, uh, his, his dad's name is the obedient one, which would fit David, but, you know, whatever. And scholarship will always try to, they will always miss the forest for the trees. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, honestly, who cares who wrote it? What we have here is a prophecy. And at the end of the day, a man named Agur who was this guy's son, wrote the following prophecy to his two buddies. Now, that's not very scholarly, but that's okay. You get it. And what follows here in verses 3 and 4 will be a picture of an unsaved man not being able to understand or to get anything from God. This will be the fool of Proverbs. And uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says... Uh, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And so it, we, we know that an unsaved man or woman get absolutely nothing from God other than God allows them enough light to see they need to be saved. We understand that. And he says in verse 2 and 3, Surely I am more brutish than any man and have not the understanding of a man. Uh, I neither learn wisdom nor have the knowledge of the holy. So this guy's admitting right out of the gate he didn't know anything about God. He's completely void of any meaningful truth and will make uh, every bad decision in life possible. And, uh, you know, he's a picture of an unsaved man or, unfortunately, he's a picture of many Christians today because a Christian can do everything an unsaved person can do except go to hell. Christian can make bad choices. Christian can lose their marriage, lose their family, lose their lives, lose their health, lose everything they have, just like an unsaved person, if he chooses or she chooses not to follow what the Bible says. And, uh, you know, this guy has no knowledge. We saw this last week when we talked about Christians today that have no roots, no understanding. They have no position, therefore they have no perspective, therefore they, they have no real action or direction in life for them to go. Life for them is just a big, depressing muck of quicksand that just swaddles them up. Now look at verse 4. He asks the question now, or a series of questions. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fist? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? Now, once we get in the first verses here, two and three, and we see that this is a man who either is a saved man or an unsaved man or a saved man completely void, either case, no knowledge about God or anything that God's doing. Then we see in verse four some tremendous prophecy stuff. The first thing he says is, who hath ascended up into heaven? Now, he's getting ready to make a statement about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is his son. If you go over to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, you'll find that it talks about Christ before he ascended, he descended. And it's a picture of exactly what Christ did after the resurrection. The word ascend is a word that you want to know. The definitive verse on that will be in John chapter 20, verse 17. The word ascend, wherever you find it in the Bible, will always be in connection with somebody under their own power ascending. And that's exactly what Christ did. He raised himself from the dead. 
he raised himself from the dead. And it's a thing where he is, once he did that, he was Lord of, the, of, of, of death and hell. And so we see the word there as Sandor Deshan. That's exactly what Christ did at the resurrection. And then he says, gather the wind in his fists. That's the controlled weather that he not only will do in the millennium, but when he was here, that <clears throat> he, he, he calmed the seas and stilled the wind. Um, Matthew chapter 8, verse 24 comes to mind, you know, that he, he stops the storms. They're in his fist. He controls the weather. It says, who hath bound <clears throat> the waters in a garment? Well, when you go back to Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 10, you know, that's a picture of the universe and the water that's up there. It's all kind of laid out for you there. As I was looking at that, I, I thought to myself, wow, you know, uh, I had a note I had put in there years ago that I forgot where it says he hath bound the waters in a garment. And yet in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, you know, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they, they got their man-made clothes, you know, the, the skins or animal skins to cover their nakedness because now they knew they were naked. God said that won't, oh, they got fig leaves, excuse me. God said that won't work because fig leaves is a picture of your own self-righteousness. So he took the fig leaves away and then he killed an innocent animal, probably a lamb, and then he clothed them. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, you know what that's called? That's called the garments of salvation. You know what God did when you, when, when you got saved? You were nakedness of sin. He gave you the garment of salvation. And it says here, who hath bound the water in a garment. You know that your body is made up of over 75% of water. And when you got saved, he clothed that garment, that water in a garment, garments of salvation. Incredible stuff. It says, who hath established all the ends of the earth. Well, that'd be in Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 27 where God tells you that he divided the earth into 12 natural boundaries after the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. The universe also was divided up that way because Israel's going to rule that someday and that'd be the 12 signs of the zodiac, which everybody wants to use as their horoscope. <laughs> yeah, it's only a horoscope when you use it to find somebody and then it's a horoscope. It was terrible. But the 12 signs of the zodiac completely split outer space. 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And then it says, what is his name? And what is his son's name? You know the world has no idea who he is. And unfortunately, most of God's people may know it by name, but they don't really know him. The world has no idea who he really is or who his son is because that's the state of the natural man. He receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. And yet most Christians don't either. And then I love this part. I could preach this. If thou canst tell. He's saying, can you tell? <laughs> you bet I can. Yeah, he's Jehovah in the Old Testament, and he's Jesus in the New Testament. He's the son of David in Luke. He's Emmanuel in Matthew. He's the root of Jesse in Isaiah. He's the good shepherd in John 10. He's I am that I am in the book of uh, 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 Song of Sodom. He's the rose of Sharon in so or Exodus. He's the rose of Sharon in Solomon. Song of Solomon. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last in the book of Revelation. He's the bread of life in John 8. He's the righteous branch in Isaiah. He is the water of life in John 4. He's the Prince of Peace and the Everlasting Father in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. He's the morning star in Revelation. He's the Lamb of God in John. He's the truth, the judgment, and the righteousness. He's wisdom in Proverbs, and he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's who he is. But they don't get it. You know, 
It's over a thousand names in the Bible for Jesus. Ask the average Christian if they could give you just 10. Now we're going to move into 5 and 6, and 5 and 6 is the, uh, uh, the second part, where the first part was about his prophecy about God and his work with, through his Son, ascending and descending, and then bringing about the garments of salvation. Ah, the second part's about his word. And what he's about to say to us will be the reason why every preacher, every Bible scholar, most churches today, certainly every seminary and Bible college, and 99% of God's people as just Corbinary Christians will hate the book that you're holding in your hands of a King James 1611 authorized version and hate you because you have it. Now look at verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. That's a great promise for everybody in this room. But here it comes in verse 6. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Now he tells us in verse 5 that every word of God is pure. I want you to notice that he said nothing about the original manuscripts. He said nothing about the teachings of Christ. He said nothing about the philosophy that Christ followed. It wasn't about the Greek or the Hebrew. No, it's the words. The words. One thing that you cannot get away from coming through the whole Bible when it comes to God's Bible and God's truth, it's always in the form of words. O-W-O-R-D-S. Words. And God has a powerful concept about words. And man and the devil has a powerful concept to change those words. And those were perfect words. They're pure words. Psalms 12, verses 6 and 7. Here it comes. The word of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Then the word of God is pure words that have been tried and purified. Seven times. You say, what does that mean? Seven men in the Old Testament were against the Word of God and tried to destroy God, His Word, and the nation of Israel. And you know what God did through those seven kings? He purified it. In the New Testament, you have seven periods of church history where the whole world tried to get rid of the Word of God and destroy what God did. You know what God did through those seven periods? He preserved it and made it pure. Then verse 6 will be one of the most incredible hidden truths anywhere in the Bible, along with two other places. In your Bible, at the beginning of your Bible, in the middle of your Bible, and at the end of your Bible, God has placed three places and given you three warnings not to change His Word. He put one in the early part in Deuteronomy, so you'd catch it there. If you're really stupid and you missed it there, then he put one in Proverbs where we're at today. And then if you're really blind as a bat and stupid, then the last thing he did, he put it in Revelation chapter 22 so you could get it there. Three places, one in the beginning, one in the middle, and one at the end, telling you not to mess with the words. Do not change them. Do not alter them. The Word of God is pure. Now, if you have a tough time figuring that out, 
You need to check into Missouri Mr. Mental Health. I'm just telling you, there's something wrong with your brain cells. Now, let's look at the first one in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. Moses, or God speaking to Moses and the children of Israel, and here's what he said. Thou shalt not add unto the word, oh, there it is, the word which I commanded you. Neither shall you diminish aught from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I commanded you. That in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 2, he's telling them, don't take from or add to any the words that I gave you. Now you see why preachers will hate this, this, this passages? I mean, they all, they all are absolutely exposed. You should see why some of God's people now are upset with, would be upset with something like this. I mean, you've spent their whole life believing what some gas bag told them, that it's okay to change the Word of God, alter the Word of God, take out this, put in this. A better reading should be when He warns you three times. Now, we saw this last week in Joshua chapter 1 when we were talking about courage, courage to believe the Bible, courage to obey the Bible, and then courage to rest in the Bible. Now, our second one is right here where we're at today in Proverbs chapter 30. So let's turn back here. It says, verse 5, the word of God is pure. Verse 6, add thou not unto his words lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Oh, man, how do you like that? Verse 6 is telling us right now today, you ain't going to like this, but hang on, you're going to like it lurch before I get through. Verse 6, he's telling us that every pastor standing in the pulpit today, correcting the Word of God with the Greek or the Hebrew, telling you that that's not what it means, or you can't do this, or you can't trust that, or there's discrepancy, he's a liar. Right there. Say, well, I don't appreciate that. Hey, don't get mad at me. Don't kill the messenger. Here's what you do. Go be a full moon, I think, Thursday. Go up on a big hill someplace, take your clothes off, paint your body, scream at the moon. That'll help you a lot. You're fortunate for a couple of reasons. It's still March and there'll be no ticks, so you're good. <laughs> he said, add, come on, just read it. Hey, just... Let's all reach over and hold hands with the person next to you. And here, just read it. Read it, th- read it with me now. Come here, go. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. It's right there. If you're changing the book, if you're telling your people this morning, standing in a pulpit, I don't care how expensive suits you got on. I don't care what kind of house you live in. I don't care what degrees behind your name or who you think you are. You are a liar based on God. Not me. I'll eat a cheeseburger with you this afternoon. I'm good. Now, having said that, of course, all the new Bibles will uh, be an attempt to, to weaken you. That's why they do it. Last week, we talked about the word dismay. Dismay means to take courage from you. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of things about all the new translations, all of them. But I'm telling you right now, they all, in one lump sum, will try to do three things and alter three things out of your life, out of that book that God gave you. The first one will be in John chapter 5, verse 39, 
where it says search the scriptures. They don't want you to search the scriptures. They want you to come to them. So they'll alter the verse and it doesn't say that. The second one will be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. They don't want you to study the scriptures. They want you to rely on them, not the Holy Spirit of God. They want to tell you how accurate or inaccurate your Bible is. They don't want you going to God and searching the scriptures or studying to show thyself approved. So in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, they altered that. And the third thing is they, every time you find it, the word doctrine in the New Testament, they took it out because they don't want you to follow doctrine. The neo-evangelical crowd and all the Baptist crowd today, they have no doctrine. And yet the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And the first thing it's profitable for is doctrine, which they alter the word out. They want to weaken you. And I'm telling you this morning, there's three warnings in the Bible written to you, and you better get it. And you better mark it down. A guy that stands in the pulpit and does that, God himself said, I'm going to reprove you because you're a liar. That's pretty strong stuff. Third one, Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the word, the words, the word, not the message, not the originals, not the thoughts, not the meanings, the W-O-R-D-S, the words. Of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. The adding to and taking away of the word of God. Now, we have covered many, many, many times, and if you want a list of it, John Biscuit over here got it all printed out for you. He can give you any one you want. But uh, we've talked many times what the, how the new Bibles t- destroy uh, every concept. They take the blood out. I mean, you take the NIV, which is the big, modern, goofy thing today that everybody gets into. I don't know how many times they take the blood of Christ out. The Lord's Prayer over there, they take it out and supplement the prayer that is in Madame Blasphe's book on worshiping the devil and put that prayer into your Bible. And you're too stupid to see that. Or you're even worse, you don't care. You're carrying around a Bible that's got the devil's prayer for the Lord's Prayer in it, found in the in the books that are given for black magic people. Over there in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, it takes the title that is given to Jesus Christ in Revelation and gives it to the devil. And you're okay with it. <laughs> I want to tell you something. The difference between a King James Bible and an NIV will be in over 60,000 places that they either added to or they took out. In 1979, Thomas Nelson uh, come out with what uh, was called the New King James Bible. And the two main Bibles that, I mean, they've come out with some new ones now. The, you know, the, the, they come out with them all the time. But for many, many years, those were the two standards. The NIV was always favorite of apostate pastors who denied everything about God in the Bible. And the New King James Bible was always for stupid Baptist preachers who thought it was just a modern version of the old King James. How dumb you are. 
And the difference between a King James 1611 that you got in your hands, both of you, from a new King James will be over 100,000 places. Suddenly, they changed the text and moved out away from and added to or took away from the Word of God. I mean, it's just that simple. Over 100,000 textual changes departed from the text of Antioch. In the New King James Bible, you'll find 22 omissions of hell just taken out. In the New King James Bible, 23 times the blood of Christ for your salvation is taken out. In the New King James Bible, 44 times the word repent is what you need to do to be saved, taken out. In the New King James Bible, 66 times the Lord, the word Lord is taken out. The terms the devil, damnation, Jehovah, completely taken out. And in the crucial passages like Mark 2.15 and Acts 4.27 and Hebrews 4.8 where the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is found, they take them out. And that's what the pastors are using today to stand up in front of them people and then telling the people that the Bible that you have in your hand today, which has already been told, is the pure word. History bears it out. And the Bible says they're liars. You know, over the years, many times we've went through the seven things that you lose when you lose your Bible. We did it a couple just a couple of weeks ago on a Thursday night, somebody asked a question. And we talked about the seven things that you will lose when you lose your Bible. The number seven, the number seven was you lose your inheritance, your millennial reward. And we saw it in Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. He clearly told them that if you lose the word of God that I've given you, you will lose your inheritance. Now, Going back to Revelation chapter 22, 19, our number three on the hit list today, it says this, if any man shall take away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things that are written in this book. Notice the guy doesn't lose his salvation. He loses his millennial inheritance. He loses the part that God had for him. He loses that. He loses his rewards. He loses his inheritance. They only come from a book that God gave you that you're to believe. And when you reject it, he rejects you as far as your millennial inheritance is concerned. Now, we have come to the last two chapters in the book of Proverbs and uh, in the book that is clearly the mind of, mind of God. And you can see just by our opening statement in, in chapter 30 where this is going to go. I mean, it's incredible stuff here. We haven't even got the tip of the iceberg yet. Proverbs is a record of what God thinks about everything in life. And he will, he will show you things about life that we need to know, that we can see it as he sees it and better Deal with it, be equipped against it, and stand up to it. And he's really going to lay out some, uh, some established truth of what God will give to you if you get his mind. We're going to go into some things here in this chapter that is unprecedented, unbelievable, that the commentaries read them, pastors get up there, and they don't have a clue what to do with it. We stay with the book and the words of this book. So far, he's laid out 29 chapters. He's told us what a fool is, defined it for us, 
and he's told us what a wise man is. He defined it for us. And these last two chapters <clears throat> will be the key to understanding not just the book, but what God wants with you. Putting everything I told you about Solomon, seeing all the different angles that you come from him, but most importantly, seeing that you have the same wisdom that he had. You, everyone here, if you're saved, you have the wisdom of Solomon inside you today. Just like he had it. You're either going to do with it what God wants you to do or you're going to do what he did with it and come to the place where you make your affinity with the world, come to the place where you, you do all the things that uh, in your own world that you want to do and put the things of God back here, do more for yourself than you do for God or through the associations you hang out with, you'll depart from it. In Solomon's case, he came back. That's not always true in God's people's cases. Many times they get so far down, they can't get back. Many times they go so far out there and they put so many things in their world that they just cannot get their way out of it. And yet the Bible says no matter what situation you are in, there's always a way out of it. Here in this church, I don't care where you're at, what you've done, or how heavy the weight is on it today, well, you don't see them here, but in the back, we got a whole room full of shovels. We'll help you dig it out. One piece at a time. You'll never have to make a bad choice or a bad decision ever again unless you just want to. You have found a place now that has the wisdom of Solomon in a book. And the mind of God in a book that you got if you're saved just like he had. And we're here to help you do it. And then the other thing is to build that relationship Find out who he is, how much he loves you, how he loves you, why he loves you, and then learn how he's going to love you back and you're to love him back. Building that relationship. It's just that simple. Well, we'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer.